Greetings, Yak. Podcast number 39 of the Quarantine Podcast. Turn to Romans 9. Look, if we're going to cover election and predestination, we got to get into divine sovereignty. And y'all, you need to save this podcast. This is going to be your primer in under 10 minutes on what divine sovereignty is. And this is a question that's going to come up a lot as you deal with other Christians outside, specifically the Reformed faith. And you've got to have an, you got to have an answer. You've got to have a passage you go to. I'm going to get, try to give you two. But today we're going to cover the divine sovereignty. Try to do it in under 10 minutes. <laughs> it's going to be a challenge, but here we go. So divine sovereignty always comes up when we talk about predestination and election. And there are three major areas in respect to God's sovereignty. First is this. He is sovereign in his authority over his creatures. Second, he is sovereign in his divine government over the universe and over history. And third, the most controversial one, he is sovereign in the distribution of his saving grace. Now the first one, he's sovereign in his authority over his creatures. This one is not really argued about, right? God says over and over again in the scripture, thou shalt and thou shalt not. He's sovereign on a practical level. With respect to the second aspect of God's sovereignty, we begin to encounter serious disagreement among Christians, okay? God rules over the universe. That's in dispute. So in classical theism, which is the area that we fall under, this affirms that God ordains everything that comes to pass, that he is sovereign in the way that he arranges every molecule and event in the universe and every event in history. Now, does he do this mysteriously? Yep. Without violating wills of his creatures? Yes. Without destroying secondary causes? Absolutely. He not only wills the ends by which his purposes come to pass, but he also wills the means to those ends. For those of you that don't have intro to philosophy yet, that might be hard to understand, but ask me questions and we can discover it more, okay? So how does our freedom work within this, right? Acts 17 says we live and move and have our being by God, right? It is by him that we do all things. What does that mean Was we lack free will? Well, R.C. has a great um, kind of analogy here, and I'm going to read it to you. Since all that happens in the universe ultimately depends on the power of God, ultimately God's sovereignty extends over all things. Look, I choose to type what I type. God permits me to write these things, not necessarily because he sanctions them, but because even if I make errors, they may serve his will. The minute that I seek to type something God is not willing to have typed, he can and will stop me. He can thwart my efforts at any point. He has both the power and the right to stop me in, in my tracks at any moment. God is not obliged to let me do whatever I want, lest he interfere with my free will. Look, it's often heard people will make this statement that God's sovereignty ends where man's freedom begins. And y'all, such a statement is not just false. I think it's blasphemous. If this were the case, then man and not God would be sovereign. This is a pagan view of divine sovereignty. In fact, just the opposite is the case. Man is free, but God is also free. God's freedom is greater than man's. Man's freedom ends where God's sovereignty begins. It is God who works all things according to the counsel of 
his will. The third aspect to God's sovereignty, that sovereignty of his distribution of grace is typically the one that endangers the most controversy. And where I go to always when people want to talk to me about this is I go to John 6 and I go to Romans 9. Typically I go to Romans 9 first and then I go to the words of Jesus second. Um, Not because um, one is greater than the other, but putting Romans 9 and then seeing it echoed by the Lord himself in John 6 seems to pack the most weight. So we're just going to go through Romans 9. I went to a debate on God's sovereignty an election of predestination several years ago with several of you YAC students. And the person who was arguing for God's sovereignty just read Romans 9. He just exegeted the text. And the person who was going to the other opinion, which we're going to talk about next week so you can understand the other side, he had to jump around and cherry-pick scriptures, pulling many out of context, to make his view plausible. But if you just look at the text straight given to you, it's pretty undeniable. So here we go in Romans 9. We're going to kind of break it down. Romans 9. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And I put that, I try to put emphasis behind Paul's words there because it is a cry Paul is saying here, and he's making an oath in the process, that if he could become accursed for the sake of the um, redemption of his countrymen, he would. His His heart hurts for the Israelites. He is in pain watching them walk away from the true Messiah. And he makes the state of affairs in Israel just grim here, right? But that does not mean that God's plan of salvation has failed. Let's continue reading verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. But not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, and this is key, listen, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It is said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. This is the passage that kind of most clearly defines the um, idea of election and predestination. First, we see Paul affirm that Israel's disobedience did not negate God's plan of salvation. Look at the prophets constantly over and over again. He said, you have abandoned the Lord, but a remnant shall remain. 
There are people within Israel who still cling to God in the midst of your open rebellion. And we see this played out in the Old Testament over and over again. Second, we see the normal order of inheritance has reversed. The custom was that the elder son should receive the blessing from the patriarch and the lion's share of the inheritance. However, Jacob received the blessing, even though Esau was firstborn. And we see that played out in the Old Testament over and over again. And here we see it played out again as suddenly redemption is offered to the Gentiles. Now, it is here I considered putting in the conversation about the prescient view of election, but I want to save that for a different podcast. I want to continue through Romans 9 so we can begin to unpack it more. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Look, it's significant that immediately after declaring this view of election of Jacob and rejection of Esau, Paul raises the rhetorical question of what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? There is this sense with people that um, say that God should not be sovereign over election or choosing of his own people or who he extends grace to, that they are saying, well, that's not right, God, which is what the rhetorical question of Romans 9 is saying. One of the things that convinced me of election and divine sovereignty is I was this man. I was the one saying, God You're clearly unrighteous. It's not fair that you would do this. And I didn't want to be the man in Romans 9. Because Paul answers him. You see, we want to place the deciding factor of election not on God's sovereign distribution of his saving grace, but on human choice to receive that grace. And it would seem perfectly just and righteous for God to reject some who first rejects his grace. That's where we want to lean to. But that's not true. Election is not unfair. Somehow it's assumed that God owes all people the gift of salvation, or at least the chance of salvation, right? Since they cannot be saved apart from his grace, he owes everyone to grant them that grace. Look, you misunderstand the definition of grace then. Grace, by definition, is something that God is not required to grant. He owes a fallen world no mercy. All people deserve justice. Grace is always undeserved. If it's deserved suddenly, it's not grace by definition. Is it fair that anyone comes to heaven? Nope. That's what makes it grace. What is fair is that we should all receive hell, especially for our actions. If God decides to pardon one guilty person, that does not mean that he does not pardon some, the ones he does not pardon somehow become any less guilty. God is in sovereign control, and you can rest in that. I'll answer some questions on 
divine sovereignty in future podcasts. But that's kind of a primer. Those are the three things that it claims. That God is sovereign over the authority of his creatures. That God is sovereign in his divine government over the universe and history. And third, that he is sovereign in his distribution of his saving grace. Well, I did it in like 11 and a half minutes. I didn't do it in 10. I'm sorry, I went over. But I think that's pretty good. Describing as best I can divine sovereignty in 11 minutes seems like a win. Save this podcast. You'll need it. This question comes up in circles and in conversations you will have over the course of your life, and you need places to go. Romans 9, John 6. We're going to jump into John 6 next time as we look at the opposing view more deeply. The pre, I think it's called the prescient view, prescient view of election. And so we will look at that next week. Peace. Peace.